Well, let me begin by saying it is so good to be with you today. I am so glad that the restrictions are lifting. I am now fully double vaxxed and uh, we can see family in a new way and uh, be, feel free to be with our church family. In fact, we're planning to go to Mishwa next week. Uh, I should say that Sharon is doing much better. As most of you know, she had a bike accident a couple months ago, broke her collarbone and a couple bones in her pelvis, but she is healing and she has agreed to go to Mishwa. Uh, today, we're continuing our series in the book of Philippians. And I want to begin with a verse that's found in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus in the one place in the Gospels describes who he is. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 28 of Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and let me teach you, because I am what? Here Jesus describes himself. He says, I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will indeed find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. What a neat description of himself. Jesus doesn't say, I'm a policeman who's looking out to find you do something wrong. I'm a judge who's going to condemn you. No. He says, you can come to me because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will actually find rest for your souls. What a description. Gentleness and humility are part of unselfishness. It's the one thing that marked the inner being of Jesus above everything else. He describes himself as being gentle and humble at heart. In other words, the essence of Jesus was a servant heart to the very core of his being. He came because he was interested in serving the needs of others more than he was interested in meeting his own needs. To amplify the meaning of having a servant's heart, I think of being generous with one's time and possessions, with one's money and energy and abilities. Unselfishness means looking out for the interest of the other person rather than simply one's own interest. Jesus, the one who came as a servant. And so in the letter to Philippians that we're looking at this summer, that's what Paul is talking about with the Philippians. We find him actually on his knees, as it were, pleading with these people that he's writing to in the Roman world that was so marked by rank and pride and strength and brutality and, brutal and force. Paul's great concern for these people in Philippi is that they would not buy into the lifestyle of the world. You can't do that and be a Christ follower. Listen to what he says to them in verse 1 of Philippians 2. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing to wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look 
out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. And you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Wow, what a way to put it. And I want us to understand that these words were absolutely revolutionary. They were game changers to the people that Paul was writing to in Philippi. There's an historian by the name of Joseph Hellerman who says that Paul is here deliberately subverting the Roman culture of the day. He's turning Philippi upside down. And then he goes on to write about Jesus. But before we get into the Jesus part, I want us to look at the culture as it would have been in Paul's day when he was writing this letter. I think we need to understand the backdrop of the culture to which Paul is writing in order for us to understand the amazing words that he says about Jesus and how it impacts our lives. First thing that we need to understand is that Paul, uh, Philippi was a Roman city. It was established by the emperor, uh, the great uh, king, Philip, in the 4th century BC, who was actually the father of Alexander the Great. And he needed a center <laughs> where uh, he could uh, consolidate the wealth of the gold mines. And so he established Philippi, which was named after him. And it was built on a major Roman road, the Ignatian Road. And when the Romans took power from the Greeks, Caesar Augustus made Philippi a Roman colony. It was actually a colony to which the ex-military people who served in the Roman world would often retire. Roman culture was oriented around I actually, before I go into that, I put a map up so that you can actually see where it was. And there's Macedonia. See the Ignatian Way. And Philippi is right on the north side of the GNC, a very pleasant place to live with a very beautiful Mediterranean climate. I knew you wanted to see a map today. Roman culture was oriented around status and social recognition that in that world was called honor. It was all about the pursuit of honor. In fact, the Romans actually had a technical phrase for the race of honor. Ancient cultures generally talked about honor and shame cultures. And it exists mainly in the eyes of how other people would think about me. I can bring honor to myself and my family, or I can bring shame to myself and my family in an honor and culture uh, honor and shame culture. In fact, they still exist today. Uh, we hear about that. We hear about honor killings. Well, that's an honor and shame culture. And it has everything to do about how people perceive you. Rome was the most status-oriented culture in the ancient world. The ancient Roman uh, Caesario said, by nature, we yearn and hunger for honor. And once we have glimpsed its radiance, there is absolutely nothing that we are not prepared to bear in order or to bear and suffer in order to secure it. So the secret to happiness in Philippi can be summed up in the single phrase, 
advance yourself, promote yourself, and serve, and serve yourself at all, whatever it takes. You see, Roman society was divided into clear ranks or categories in order to make this race for honor clear and motivating for people. The basic division in Roman culture was between the non-elite class and the elite class. Or, another way to put it, the, haves, the have-nots and the haves. Now, according to Hellerman, the historian, the non-elite class consisted of 98% of the population. 98% are the masses. And there was categories for this non-elite class. At the bottom of this non-elite class were the slaves. Rome had a lot of slaves among its people. Uh, historians estimate up to 45, even 50% of the population at the time Paul wrote this letter were slaves. Slaves had absolutely no rights whatsoever. They were possessions of their master. They were a commodity to serve their master. They could be purchased, they could be uh, sold, they could be abused. You never had to answer to anyone about it. How did you become a slave? If you were conquered by the Romans, they may take you away and make you a slave. If uh, you had debts that you couldn't pay, you, they could make you a slave. And so they were the lowest class. Above them were what was called the freedmen. Uh, that was about 35% of the population, according to estimates. These weren't slaves, so they're not in that category, but they didn't have a lot of rights. The Jews who lived in Palestine in the first century were freedmen, by and large, and most of them were poor. Above them in this same category of the non-elites were citizens of the Roman Empire, and that was about 18% of the population. Paul tells us that he was a citizen of Rome. But most people say living in Philippi would not have been Roman citizens, so this was still a minority of folks. But to be a citizen of Rome meant that you had rights that other people didn't have and that you were in a higher social status. And then you go into the elite class, and this was only 2% of the population. And the lowest part of the elite class were called equestrian. That phrase may be familiar to you. Uh, do you know what it actually comes from? It's when, originally, it was when people had enough money to buy a horse that could take them into battle. But by the time Paul wrote this uh, letter, the equestrian class could have been a landowner. It could have been a merchant. Uh, anybody who had a, enough money to live a higher status and who was also a Roman citizen. Now, uh, this was a small group of people, but above that was an even smaller group of people. This was the governors, the magistrates, the senators and their family. That was a higher status. And then at the very top, of course, was the Roman emperor, the Caesar himself. Just one guy there. So this was the ladder that everybody was trying to climb in Roman culture. Everybody in their society, everything in their society was arranged to reinforce and stimulate the race for honor. And again, this was expressed in so many different ways in Roman culture. 
If you were walking down the street of Philippi in Paul's day, you would have noticed that right away. If you were a freedman, you were allowed to wear a special hat. It sounds kind of goofy, I know, but it was actually called a freedman's cap. And you could wear this cap with pride because it would tell everybody, I'm not a slave. I'm a rung up from a slave. Now, if you were a citizen, you could wear a toga. You've heard about togas in ancient Rome. Well, it was a real thing. And it was actually a thing of status and honor. If you were not a Roman citizen, you were not allowed, absolutely not allowed, to wear a toga. And even though they were kind of a hassle to wrap and wear, folks would wear them because they wanted everybody else to know, I am a Roman citizen. I'm a step up. Now, if you were an equestrian, not only could you wear a toga, you were also allowed to wear a gold ring, which would signify that you were an equestrian. It was saying to the rest of the guys, hey, I'm a step up. And above that, you have the rulers, the governors, the Senate. Not only could they wear a gold ring and a toga, but they were allowed to have a purple stripe down their toga, which would signify that they were again a step up. If you were an equestrian, you were not allowed to wear that purple stripe. Really cool. And then, of course, there was a Caesar who had all kinds of perks and ranks and, and stuff that he could wear. But if you were walking down the streets of Philippi, you would know the position, the social status of everybody by the clothes that they wore. And then there were the legal rights. <laughs> Again, there were legal rights. In, in Roman culture, the idea was that not every, uh, everybody was equal before the law like it is in ours. No, that would be considered inappropriate because you needed to have these legal rights to enforce the honor culture. You see, Roman citizens had certain, certain rights. They could not be flogged without a trial. In fact, they probably wouldn't be flogged at all. That's why you have the issue of, uh, when Paul and Silas were in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, remember they were thrown in jail and they were flogged and they were put in stocks. And that night the magistrates found out that both Paul and Silas were Roman citizens and they were terrified what would happen to them because they had done that to these Roman citizens. And they literally brought Paul and Silas in and apologized to them for their behavior. If you're a Roman citizen, you had legal rights. They, they, they couldn't do that to you. You know, the most dishonoring punishment among the Romans was to be hung upon a cross. That was the most disgusting thing. And this was a punishment that was reserved primarily for slaves, but also for freedmen if they had broken the law. But his intent was not just to humiliate. Crucifixion, the word crucifixion was actually a technical phrase in the Roman culture and it literally meant a slave's punishment. One writer says it was considered so vile in polite Roman conversation that it was absolutely regarded as obscene and never a word never to be used among the elite. Another way that they classified the class that you were from was the place that you sat at public events. 
I tried to think of a way to understand that in our culture today, and the best thing I could come up with was flying. Some of you maybe have flown a lot, and maybe you have even purchased the uh, first-class seats. <laughs> you know, there's designations known as frequent flyers. And you can sit in the first class, which means you're not back there with the rest of the rabble. rabble. You know, the economy, the coach, the second class. If you purchase a first-class ticket, you get a little curtain put between you and the rest so that they can't even look into the Holy of Holies where the first class people sit. And in the first class, you get your own washroom, you get extra wide chairs that you can lean down, uh, you get VIP service, you get a stewardess who serves you how many drinks you want or whatever food you want. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but airlines actually designate their status. I was checking this out, and I found that one airline had a, a platinum status, a diamond status, a gold status, a, a silver status, a zinc status, and a tin status. <laughs> Nobody wants to be in the tin status. And they'll, they'll try to do everything that they can to reinforce the hunger for more status. Higher class passengers get to board the plane before lower class passengers. If you're in the lower class, you got to wait and watch the higher class go before you. <laughs> and some genius, even uh, from a marketing firm, firm, even came up with a, a brilliant idea. The first class people would go on the plane first, and they would get to walk down this beautiful red carpet that was laid out for them to go on the plane. Fabulous. And then they'd roll up the red carpet, and th they would make the rest of the passengers walk on regular old airport carpet how shamed they would feel. There's even a monitor <laughs> in the boarding area. It's a very interesting monitor because it's called the upgrade monitor. And everybody who wants an upgrade is on that list. But it depends on what status that you are in the frequent flyers, whether you get are able to get the upgrade before someone before you. Let's say you want to get a seat on the plane that you can stretch out on. There's more room. <laughs> and somebody else wants it. They will check the upgrade status to see how high you are on it. And if you're not higher than the other person, then you don't get it. Now, in Philippi, that's the way it was. If you went to a public event like an athletic con uh, contest, or you went to the Hippodrome to see a horse race, or you went to the theater. Seating was arranged not as we do according to ticket price, but according to your status. In the Colosseum in Rome, there was a seat reserved for the Caesar, and nobody could sit there even if he wasn't there. And then the seats around, the best seats, were reserved for who? The Roman senators, the rulers, the magistrates, the governors. And then there were the equestrians who would sit around it. And it was actually illegal if you were a citizen to try to sneak up and sit in their section. You could be arrested. Interesting. Succeeding meant succeeding publicly. Status and honor was a public commodity. Your worth was mainly determined by your status that you had in other people's eyes. It's interesting that James addressed this in James chapter 2 when he said, 
verse 2, uh, 1, my dear brothers and sisters, how do you claim to have faith in your glorious Lord if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting, notice this, dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry. What does that mean? It means they're an equestrian. It means they have on a toga. And literally, the word for fancy jewelry in the Greek is a gold ring. That's exactly what an equestrian wore. That's what it says in the King James. Check it out. Or the New American Standard. And another person comes in who's poor and dressed in dirty clothes. That's a slave. They don't even have a free men's hat. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor person, hey, you can stand over there and sit on the floor. Doesn't that show discrimination? And it shows that your judgments are guided by evil motives. You see, the church was radically different than the world. There was no status. Slaves could be leaders in a church. That's why Paul said in Galatians, in Christ there is no male or female, no slave or Greek, or slave or free, no Greek or Jew. We are all one in Christ. Now, in Philippi, it was very important to maintain your status. You see, in the Roman world, people hardly ever went from one category to another. It's within the categories that there was this competition to raise yourself. Among the senators and the rulers, there would always be this vying to get a greater title. If I really wanted to do great, I would have to have Caesar be the one who will award me a higher title because the amount of honor I received was appropriate to the honor of the person who elevated me to that position. Interesting. You could raise your position in the Roman culture by winning an athletic context, a contest, being the champion of the games, or by being a champion in military battle could give you a higher status that could be awarded to you. Sometimes people would lose status if they had inappropriate behavior or if they somehow lost their wealth and they could actually lose their title. And in the Roman world, that was considered to be the worst thing that could ever happen to you. There's an interesting article by a frequent flyer expert entitled, How to Cope with Losing Your Flying Status, Your Flight Status. I'm not making this up. It's a terrible thing. He says to lose your elite status as a flyer every March 1st, for the airlines, they reassess your status. This writer actually called it Judgment Day. You can go from a diamond status down to a tin status or whatever. He said, that is to be avoided at all cost. In the Roman culture, the ancient world where Philippi was, there was a, actually a technical term for the loss of the elite status. It was called being humbled. It was a terrible expression. All of this is going to come when we look at Jesus in a moment in this passage. It happened, but it was always regarded as a tragedy. Nobody ever volunteered for it. Nobody would ever say, I'd like to be humbled today. But it would happen, and when it did, it was always a tragedy. 
In fact, the Roman Pliny said, it is more ugliful to lose praise, to go down in one's status than never to have been praised at all. This is life in the Roman world. And this was especially true in Philippi. It's interesting that archaeologists who have done uh, digs in Philippi have discovered more inscriptions about people's status and their desire for a higher status in Philippi than any other Roman city that they've excavated. This was the big thing in, Rome, in Philippi, to get a higher status. Now, Jesus is going to mess with Philippi. And maybe mess with us too. What does Paul write? Verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Jesus had. That even though he was in nature God, even though he was God, Jesus did not think of equality with God, something that he would cling to, something that he would hold on to. <laughs> Consider that in light of what we said about Roman culture. Instead, it says... He, in verse 7, he gave up his divine privileges. He made a decision to willingly give up. It wasn't taken from him. And he took on the humble position of a slave. Remember what we said about the word humility? It was a technical term in Roman culture for losing one's status. And it was the worst thing that could happen to you in this culture of... <laughs> honor and shame. In other words, Christ is clothed in God's majesty. He is in very nature God. He's clothed in splendor. But he did not consider his status something that he would use for his own advantage. Rather, he made a decision. He deliberately chose to disadvantage himself for the benefit of other people. And Paul said, in your relationships with one another, we're to have that same mindset as Christ. What did he do? He humbled himself and made himself nothing. <laughs> what did he, 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 he deliberately chose to do that, to be made in human likeness, though he was divine, though he was God. Paul actually and deliberately uses here the term slave. He became a slave. Some translations translate it as servant, but literally it's the lowest class in Roman culture. He became a slave. With Jesus, there was no divine splendor in his decision, no purple stripe, no gold ring, no citizen stoga, not even a freedman's cap. Paul deliberately in, actually uses the word slave. Jesus has gone from the highest position, the most exalted position, and he chose to become a slave, a servant to all. But he doesn't stop there. Paul goes on to say he was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form... There he uses the word, he humbled himself. That's the second time. Again, that's the technical term to lose your status in Rome. Jesus deliberately did that. And not only did he do that, it says he, <laughs> be, 
he humbled himself in obedience to God. Again, that's a bad word in the Roman world. Nobody wanted to be obedient to anybody. They hated that word. That was the word that you would use for a child. That was the word that you would use for a slave. A slave had to obey his master. It was a word of weakness. None of these guys would ever use the word obedient to describe themselves. But Jesus became obedient. And what did he become obedient to? The worst kind of death that anybody could ever have, death on a cross. That was a slave's death. That wasn't a Roman citizen's death. That was the worst death. It was an obscene word among the Romans. No wonder Paul, when writing to the Corinthians, said the message of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. It's folly because of their status levels. But that's what Jesus did. He willingly submitted himself to the worst kind of death that you could ever imagine, a crucified slave. He was Lord of all. By the way, the book of Philippians, as we've already seen, is a book about joy. It's a book about what it means to have the highest level of joy. Everyone in Philippi, including everyone in Rome, would look at this story, would look at the words that Paul used here to describe what Jesus did with scorn, with contempt, and at best with confusion. Are you kidding me? Jesus willingly humbled himself. He did it on purpose. He who was God. No wonder Paul called it folly to the, the Greeks. But that's not the end of the story. Now we come. Uh, before we do that, I want to just show you how Jesus said we needed to be. In Matthew 20, verse 24, he says, when the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked for, they were indignant. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of this world lorded over people and the officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be leader among you must what? Must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must what? Be, come your slave. Not servant, but slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lived it out. And we're to be like that, Paul says. We're to have the attitude of Jesus. <laughs> Some of you know my wife uh, was injured in a bicycle accident. She broke a few bones uh, in her pelvis and her collarbone. In the, for the first few weeks, she basically became an invalid. I was her chief caregiver. She needed me to help her with all the necessities of life. Now, I had a choice. I could willingly become her servant and do it with joy. Or I could complain, what I got to be ish. <laughs> you know, I considered it a privilege to serve my wife, the one who has done so much to serve me in my life and in the ministry that God has called me to and to my family. I actually said, God, thank you for this opportunity and help me to do this in a way that honors my wife. 
Now, it also says Jesus uh, was obedient to the Father. And I must say that there were times I wasn't fully obedient. You see, Jesus, uh, Sharon has some perfectionist tendencies that I take exception to. And so we had some interesting discussions about that. But I still willingly served her with all my heart. But that's not the end of this story. I love this story. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, God has now exalted him to the highest place of honor, verse 9, and given him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Notice how public this is. In the Roman world, this whole thing of honor was a public thing. Your status was how other people saw you. And now, look at what Paul says about Jesus. He humbled himself to the lowest position. He became a slave, but God has now exalted him. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue. Again, notice how public. We'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and it's all to the glory of God the Father. I love this story. And that's the kind of heart that we are called to have. That's what Jesus calls us to. All Romans knew that honor is not honor if it's not public. And that's why Paul said, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. The kingdom of God is now this new reality that breaks into the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of Philippi are the kingdom of where you and I live, where the first end up being last, where the servant are the great ones. And the shocking surprise is that this is the road to joy. This is the road to advancement in the kingdom. And that's what Jesus did. That's why Jesus said, anybody who would be my disciple must take up his cross and follow after me. <laughs> who recruits people with a statement like that in the Roman world? <laughs> we recruit people by saying, look at the perks that you can have if you join this movement. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Die to yourself. In humility, value others above yourself. Seek the advancement of others over the advancement of yourself. Deny yourself, your sinful idol worship, fearful, petty, self-minded, me-first, ladder-climbing self, and just die so that, what? God can lift you to a higher, better, truer, nobler place. That's the surprising place that God calls us to. Are you willing to do that? That's what it means to be a Christ follower. Is this easy? No. Does this go counterculture? Yeah. Does this go against my rights? Yeah. Is this the path to joy? Yeah. I don't think anybody put it better than St. Francis of Assisi. And I want to close with this as our prayer. And it's on the screen, and I'd like you to pray it with me. Is your prayer. prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. 
O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. And amen.